So this afternoon I'd like to expand a little bit on a, a theme I've been reflecting on quite a bit over the last year or so, and it's really around the, the question of embodiment. And when I first started reflecting on this, one of the first things I did was to go to the dictionary. You know, how is embodiment defined? And the dictionary gives the definition as the tangible or the visible expression of a quality or a lived expression of a quality. I think there's a lot of different ways of talking about embodiment. There's a lot of different ways of thinking about embodiment, some of which I will go into. But I think there's one way of of thinking about embodiment, which is almost a synonym for nibbana or liberation. When I think about this, I I think about embodiment as this, this unification or this congruence of aspiration, intention, and manifestation. Aspiration, intention, and manifestation. And I think to understand that kind of unification or that kind of congruence, um, to understand embodiment, requires a willingness to really explore and to investigate deeply the experiences of dissonance the places where that integration or that congruence are not present. All of the places in body, speech, and mind where there is actually a disconnection or a dissonance between our aspirations and intentions and the ways that we live, act, speak, and think. Now, dissonance, I, I think, is, is uncomfortable because I don't know about you, but I'm imagining you might be aware of some of these areas of dissonance. And it's a slightly uncomfortable experience, isn't it? When we act or speak in a way which is really not aligned at all with our intentions or, or, our, or our values, And I think dissonance is something probably fairly regular for a lot of people. You know, we have the aspiration and intention to to live and speak and relate with kindness and with metta and respect, and we find ourselves thinking or speaking with harshness, judgment or blame. You know, there's that wonderful saying that I open my mouth and samsara jumps out. You might see it here that you have the, the intention. You know, you might get up in the morning thinking, today's a day of continuity. You know, that kind of lasts for an hour or so. And then you find that that intention gets hijacked by something else just looks more interesting to do. You know, we might have the intention or the aspiration to to really inhabit the present moment until the first alluring fantasy comes along. 
You know, we might have the intention to to cultivate a certain amount of restraint and simplicity um, in our day, and and then, but the second plate of food looks really good. You know, so we keep finding these gaps, don't we? We see, keep coming across these places where our intentionality seems to break down. And often it breaks down in the face of impulse, it breaks down in the face of habit, it breaks down in, in, in the face of reactivity. And there's a lot of different ways of, of meeting this experience of dissonance. You know, one way of meeting this experience of dissonance is with a whole uh, kind of sense of failure and, and judgment and blame and shame. I'm, I'm not good enough. Um, I can't do this. You know, it's impossible for me. And what we actually experience that when dissonance is met with that pattern, what it actually does is only really to further undermine um, energy, confidence, aspiration. We can also probably be aware that the, the mindfulness of dissonance, the awareness of dissonance, I think is the beginning of every path of awakening. The mindfulness of the gaps between our intentions and our lived experience is probably where every journey begins. And this true was as true 2,500 years ago as it is today. You know, it, it's, it's almost illustrated in the story of the Buddha sitting underneath the Bodhi tree, isn't it, on the eve of his awakening as we inherit that story. We don't hear of the, the Buddha sitting, you know, with a sublime mind, you know, thinking almost, always these thoughts, you know, pervaded with compassion and kindness. Actually, we saw, see the Buddha's intention, and actually we see the appearance, of course, of doubt, craving, aversion, agitation, dullness. And that was the disconnect. I mean, in the face of that, Siddhartha didn't sort of pack up and go home. He kind of looked at those, those patterns, looked them in the eye, and said, I know you. There is a tension in waking up. There's a tension, actually, in learning what it means to be freer inwardly. Now, that tension often is the tension between our intentions and aspirations and our actualities. But the tension of waking up, it, it can be viewed as a very negative tension, a catalogue of failure. Or it can be viewed as a creative tension. And I think in the context of this teaching, dissonance asks to be viewed as a creative tension. We are looking at the tension, the, 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 the tension, yes, of learning to align our hearts and our lives with what we most deeply value and treasure. The tension of waking up, I think, is actually our classroom. This is where we practice. This is where we learn the lessons of unbinding the heart, the lessons of liberation. 
I don't know, a, a friend of mine who's, who's a, a neuropsychologist, he, he describes a sort of development of awakening in the, these terms that I find really quite helpful. He says most of us begin in a place of unconscious incompetence, just vulnerable to every single pattern of reactivity we possess. You know, unconscious incompetence. We, we get spit out at the end of psychological and emotional storms. We have no idea how we ended up there. It's just a state of bewilderment, isn't it? Then he talks about the movement to conscious incompetence. And I think this is the place, actually, where we know what's going on and we know what's unhelpful and we do it anyway. This, this is a very difficult part in people's practice. And I don't know anybody who kind of has made a shortcut around this phase in practice. You know, does anybody actually think aversion is helpful? I mean, does anybody actually think that craving has good outcomes? You know, does anybody think that agitation is something that's useful to cultivate? Of course we know it's not. And we do it anyway. There we are. And, and, and you know, it, it can be such a frustrating place in practice, can't it? Be sort of like being like a spectator upon your own disasters. You know, and there's enough mindfulness there to actually know what's going on. But somehow the habit patterns outweigh the intentions. And that's that place of conscious un- incompetence. It's, it's a difficult place. It's, this is actually where we become more aware of dissonance, where we can view it negatively or where we can approach it as a creative tension. And the third aspect of conscious competence is actually what I would refer to as embodiment. This is where the, the kind of the weight of the habit patterns through understanding, through insight, through calming, through cultivation has simply become more transparent and has less grip. Now, in this path, if we were to relate to dissonance as a creative tension, what would that actually mean for us? And I think this is why the Buddha very much presented this whole pathway, not, not as a kind of you know, passive observation. We don't do this to stay the same, actually. You know, we don't do this practice in order to be more intimately acquainted with our own disasters. We don't do this practice in order to be a more informed spectator upon our own disasters. But I think as a creative tension, it, it is why the Buddha really approaches the whole of this journey as a pathway of cultivation. Cultivating the qualities inwardly that liberate and awaken and it is why, I think, it is why the fourth way of establishing mindfulness, any of you who are familiar with the Satipatthana Sutta, will actually see that in the fourth way of establishing mindfulness in terms of dhammas, 
What we actually see are the hindrance factors and the awakening factors set side by side. To me, it's, it's almost like the classical example of this creative tension. Because what do the... You, I mean, you, I know Catherine gave a talk on the hindrance factors, but just a reminder in case they've slipped anybody's attention or in case anybody's completely free of them and has completely forgotten them. But, you know, the craving for sensual pleasure, the aversion, you know, the agitation and worry, the sloth and torpor and the doubt. What we actually see, the hindrance factors are really what keep habit patterns going. Hmm? So when the Buddha talks about the hindrance factors, you know, he didn't just talk about these obviously as things you experience on the beginning of a retreat and then you get over. He talked about this continuum, that the five hindrances are the five manifestations of greed, hatred and delusion. That greed, hatred and delusion are the three manifestations of avidya, of ignorance, of not knowing the way things are and also not wanting to know. So when we actually look at what's going on in the hindrance factors, those mental states, we actually see how much they're the root of every single psychological and emotional storm we can and do experience. I think it would be extremely difficult to find any of those storms that are exempt from the hindrance factors. So one way of orienting ourselves in the practice is to feel like these are things to get rid of, you know, like kind of like chipping away at the coal face. You know, I'm, I'm going to chip away at the softened torpor. I'm going to chip away at the aversion. I'm going to chip away at the agitation. But I think what is actually suggested in the fourth way of establishing mindfulness is that rather than chipping away at the hindrance factors, we actually cultivate the awakening factors in the midst of the hindrance factors. Not as something outside. So this is really speaking about this, this, this creative tension of waking up. We're cultivating the awakening factors in the midst of the hindrance factors. And I guess I would invite you to really look at your practice in a single day and to see how much that sense of cultivation of those awakening factors is really part of the fabric of your practice. So I want to look at these individually a little bit. Clearly the first of these is mindfulness. It's very hard to find any of the Buddhist lists that actually don't begin with mindfulness. Because if we don't actually know what's going on, there's not too much of a chance it's going to change, is there? You know? And actually we can see that when we're not mindful, we're heedless, we're forgetful. Hmm? When we're not mindful, basically we're living a life often guided by emotional habit and reactivity. So mindfulness, that willingness to turn towards all experiences and events with kindness, curiosity, and discernment. The willingness to turn towards all events and experience with kindness, curiosity, and discernment. It's also very important to recognize within mindfulness that there is a restraining factor. 
When you look at many of the kind of similes, metaphors that are used in the teaching for, of mindfulness, you see how much this quality of restraint is repeated again and again. Now, restraint is not about pushing something away. It's not about suppression. It's not another kind of variation of aversion. Restraint is very much about not feeding. And it's part of the discernment of mindfulness. I mean, one of the ways that, that the Buddha talked about mindfulness, he compares it to being like the gatekeeper at the gates of a city. And if you think of the city as your mind and heart, the job of the gatekeeper is to discern, really, who it would be helpful to welcome into the city and who not to welcome. Who would actually, what would be helpful and what would be harmful. And we need to think of that in relationship to our own kind of psychological and emotional world. What is it helpful to welcome, entertain, make at home? And what is it helpful not to? Now, restraint, as I mentioned, doesn't mean pushing something away. It's being able to look something in the eye, to know it's unhelpful, and to not feed it. Hmm? To not feed it. The second of the awakening factors is very much within the realm of investigation. Hmm? Now, in my experience in, in meditation, there, there, there's two kinds of investigation. There's a reflective investigation and there's an experiential investigation. The reflective part is important. It's reflection upon the teaching. It's reflection upon the teaching. It's a capacity to, to spend time with the teaching to see whether we have an intellectual agreement with it, to see what it means in our own experience. I mean, it's very important, it's very easy to, to turn a lot of the teaching into a kind of cliché or think, oh, I've heard that before, you know. I mean, how many times has somebody, have you heard about impermanence? Quite a few, I imagine. How much do we reflect on that? What does this mean for me? What does it mean for me to live in the, the light of impermanence? What are the implications? Why, did the, why is it given so much attention in this teaching? Why did the Buddha actually say around impermanence that just like the, the, the footprint of the elephant in the forest is the largest of all the animal's footprints, so too is impermanence the most important of all insights? Do we reflect on that? I think sometimes, with, you know, with, with Western practitioners, I think, you know, there's so easily this tendency to, to divide things into either being very experiential, uh, sorry, intellectual, or being very heartfelt. And, and almost a tendency to almost dismiss the intellect as somehow something that gets in the way of practice. Um, we need to engage our minds with this practice. We need to look at the ways that our minds can be truly an ally and truly a friend. And one of the ways in which the mind is truly an ally is in its capacity to reflect. 
The second as aspect of investigation is, is really uh, experiential. And I actually think of all of meditation development as being experiential investigation. You know, if I sit, if I sit and, and you know, pain in the knee arises, and rather than immediately moving into the aversion, resistance place, I have the willingness to stay with that just a few more minutes, see what happens. That's experiential investigation. If I see a, a particular uh, judgmental pattern, familiar judgmental pattern arising in my day, and I know it, and rather than jumping right into it, I might experiment with bringing metta to that judgmental pattern. That's experiential investigation. If, if I'm practicing and I'm working with mindfulness of breathing, and I see the attention drawn to some very familiar fantasy or or rumination, and I and I experiment with coming back rather than going into it, that's experiential investigation. If I even uh, you know I'm doing a walking period and I get to the point in the walking where you know my mind says oh enough already you know time for tea and I just take ten more steps that's experiential investigation it's kind of moving into what we don't know it's moving beyond the range of of the familiar the habitual and that's actually where we're really seeing the the that kind of tension of waking up don't we because it's a lot easier often to go with the familiar to go with the habitual rather than to explore the domains that we don't know and that are not so familiar to us. The third of the awakening factors that the Buddha speaks about consciously cultivating is the, in Pali it's virya, which is often translated as energy, but I think it, it's too limited a translation because virya includes energy, it includes skillful effort, but its most accurate translation is heroism. Heroism. To cultivate that quality in the practice of courage and fearlessness. I mean, that is certainly part of the creative tension of waking up. It's not easy for us to go to places of, that are unfamiliar that are not known, where we don't immediately feel a sense of, oh yes, you know, I know how to be here. It's actually quite, it takes a lot of courage to swim against the tide of our own habit patterns. Hmm? To swim against the tide of our own patterns of clinging, of, of, of wanting to fix, of finding solutions. Sometimes it takes a great deal of courage and fearlessness just to seek for stillness in the midst of agitation. The next of these awakening factors, and and please remember, these are spoken of as practices. They are not just spoken of as outcomes of practice. But these these are cultivations. These are practices. They are part of the awakening fabric. They're part of actually uh, the creative tension. And the next of these is joy. 
it's easy to forget about joy in retreats, amazingly so. You know, I mean, when you come on retreats, you know, and you, in the moments when you, you actually kind of look around you a little bit, it doesn't really look like people are having that great a time, does it? It can often look sort of grim, you know, deadly earnest, you know, deadly serious. And, of course, sometimes that is just the, the outward manifestation of people really making an effort to be here. But sometimes we need to look in our own practice whether there is a sufficient joy level. And here, you know, joy is spoken about in a lot of different ways. And it's not a denial of the difficult. But actually the, the difficult is made much more approachable with a heart that actually knows how to smile. You know, when there's some gladness inwardly. Some sense, uh, even if it's a very low-level sense of well-being. This is something to cultivate. There's a lot of uh, different aspects of joy spoken about in this teaching. Sometimes uh, the joy of contentment. One of the first teachings of any monastic life, but I think it equally applies to us here. You know, when the Buddha spoke about people coming into the monastic life, he taught about the four great contentments. Be content with whatever accommodation you're given, or even if you're given none at all. You know, be content with whatever clothing you're given, or even if you're given none at all. You know, finding contentment with whatever food you're given, or even if you're given none at all. And finding contentment and joy in seeing the falling away of the difficult and the unhelpful, and and of the joy of setting one one's heart on a path of awakening. I think what, what the Buddha is really speaking about when it speaks about the different domains of joy uh, from the, the kind of quiet joys of contentment and well-being to sometimes the, the joys of understanding, the, the joys sometimes that come through the mind beginning to be more collected and concentrated. But the real teaching about joy is discovering an inwardly generated happiness, an inwardly generated joy. Because so much of our life, you know, we are are just conditioned and condition ourselves to externalize the sources of happiness and joy. And the reason why so much emphasis in this tradition is, is given to formal practice the cultivation of, of deep inner collectedness is because this is where we get our first glimpse of inwardly generated happiness and joy that has nothing to do with the world of conditions. It speaks about the cultivation of the awakening factor of tranquility and calmness. And this is not speaking just about a state. It's speaking about a path. Looking at the Satipatthana, breathing in, calming the formations. Breathing out, calming the formations. Breathing in, calming everything that is agitated. Breathing out, calming everything that is agitated. Aversion is agitated. Frustration is agitated. Envy is agitated. Fear is agitated. Greed is agitated. 
So when we cultivate mindfulness of breathing, it's not just about concentration, it's about actually insight, about how this quality that we cultivate of collectedness is a means of calming all that is agitated. Much big relationship between calming and concentration, but not a specific relationship. There can be a lot of calming as an insight practice without cultivating concentration practice. But sometimes they are very much woven together. Concentration is important. It doesn't mean that we have to have eight jhanas, but learning to have a collected mind is pretty helpful. You know, my experience in Westerners and practices, most people come into practice, they have a lot of insight. Many Westerners in their life, you know, have engaged in a lot of inner reflection, a lot of self-awareness. And we have a lot of insight about what causes suffering and what brings suffering to an end. You know, we often have a lot of insight about our own patterns and, and, and tendencies. Do you ever wonder why those insights sometimes don't seem to make much difference? You know, why we get into that place at times of conscious incompetence? You know, I know what's going on and I'm doing it anyway. You know, um, I think sometimes it's because our insight is not always evenly balanced with, with, with our concentration capacity. That sometimes it's just not, not enough inner stillness to allow those insights really to, to kind of drop into our bones. You know? And again, this is not about cultivating you know, absorptions or anything like that. But think of how many times in a day we might have the choice between cultivating a collected mind or cultivating a fragmented mind. Have you noticed that? There's a lot of choices there, isn't there? I mean... You know, I remember teaching uh, very recently, I was, I was teaching at a university, a retreat in a university setting, and, you know, people were really had that intention, like here, to be, you know, more collected. And, and somebody came and they said to me that at the end of the day, that you know what universities are like in terms of notices and signs and information, that at the end of the day they had read every single notice papered to the walls. You know, they they knew everything about the apartments they didn't want and were never going to move into. You know, about the courses they were never going to take and weren't even interested in. You know, about all of the evacuation procedures. You know, they knew everything. They knew everything, but they said it, it became clear it was a choice. You know, almost like a driven choice. A, this familiar pattern of of distractedness, or the cultivation of collectedness and attentiveness makes a big difference in the times off the cushion to really see how often those choices are available to us. Equanimity is the last of the awakening factors. And again, this is a cultivation. It's really a surrendering of aversion and craving. Surrendering of the patterns of aversion and craving that really do allow us to be equally near all things. Not so easy. The question of what we are embodying. Recognizing that in our day we are always probably embodying something 
always manifesting something, we're practicing something. And what we're really endeavoring here to do is to embody something more deeper, more deep, of a greater enduring value than the prevailing predominant mental state. So we learn embodiment, I think, in three different, a few different areas. First of all, what we're endeavoring to embody in this path is around attitudes. Attitudes that are liberating and awakening. The attitudes of kindness, the attitudes of compassion. To embody those in the midst of all things, the lovely and the unlovely the easeful and the unpleasant. Are we embodying those attitudes of kindness and compassion outwardly and inwardly? The willingness to befriend and care, to neglect nothing. Attitudes are the forerunners to intentions. And as many of you have heard many times, it is said that the whole of this path pivots, rests upon the head of the pin of intention. So when the Buddha speaks about intention like all things, he speaks about wise intention. And what you see in those wise intentions, which for, fortunately are very short lists, are very easy to remember. The ways in which attitudes actually take shape in intentionality. So the intentions of kindness, the intentions of compassion, but the third one, equally important, the intention of renunciation. The intention of non-clinging. That is that intention of non-clinging that truly allows kindness and compassion to be manifested. The next area of embodiment that I think is, is really significant is the embodiment of insight. Now, as I mentioned just a few minutes ago, most people are not short of insight. And when the Buddha speaks about insight, he really speaks about understanding lessons that have been with us as long as we have lived. The lesson of impermanence. How much do we argue with this? Avoid it. Seek permanence where there is none. How much are we resisting or in argument with the process of change? Not always. We welcome changes when it's um, a benefit to me. It's the changes we don't welcome. They don't seem to benefit me that we don't welcome. Impermanence sounds quite neutral, but we are not emotionally neutral in relationship to impermanence. We like it, we don't like it. It doesn't make any difference. It is. It's an isness. There's something about embodying that insight that has to do with the tendency to cling, but isn't it true that the 
The actuality of impermanence makes a mockery of clinging, and it makes a mockery of grasping, of trying to make something stand still. We learn to embody the understanding of dukkha. How much pain and distress is born in our life of arguing with the unarguables. Some things are unarguable. Change is unarguable. It's not like some of us have got an exemption. The pain that comes with having a body, the pain of change, the pain of aging, the pain of illness, the pain of, of death, of those that seen the pain of loss of those that we love. This is an unarguable. This is dukkha dukkha. The kind of dukkha that the Buddha is truly concerned with bringing to an end is what is called sankata or sankara dukkha. The way that we, well, this is basically our argument with the unarguable. And this shouldn't be happening, it's not fair, why is this happening to me? All of the narratives that we lay upon it, you know, the imaginings that we put on top of it. This is the domain of dukkha that is optional. I think a lot of embodiment happens when we find the willingness in ourselves to put down the argument with the unarguable. Think of how much freedom that might bring into our life, how much ease that might bring into our life. And the third area of insight, I think, which is truly, uh, we're truly concerned with embodying, not just thinking about, is non-self. That, that there is no abiding, independent self-existence in anything or anyone externally or in ourselves. What does that mean for us? How much energy goes into trying to solidify the very thing that we cannot solidify? And, and non-self, I really want you to remember that you know, sometimes people make a real big deal about anatta and, and non-self. You know, this is a kind of end of retreat insight you know, after all the little ones. This was the Buddha's second teaching. You know, the Buddha did think of understanding anatta or non-self pretty much as kindergarten practice and graduate practice too, but also as kindergarten practice. It's actually living what we see. Sometimes I think it's almost better to encourage people to find a solid, independent self than to try and encourage people to understand non-self. If you took that on as a project for just an hour, you probably wouldn't, you would probably give up. Say it's not so. But what does it mean for us to live in that light? To not be deceived by self-views. To not cling to views of self. Because how much actual suffering and discontent is generated by clinging to views of who I am and who you are. Learning to live, to embody that understanding is really cultivating the non-clinging mind. So embodiment is really, as far as my understanding, the direction of the path, but it's also the intention of the moment. 
It is cultivated. It's what releases the hold of the hindrances, releases the hold of greed, hatred, and delusion, releases the hold of ignorance. And embodiment actually begins with wanting to know. With wanting to know. Wanting to understand the truths of this moment. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.